Matthew chapter 1. Of course, yesterday was Christmas. What a blessed time of the year. Friends, family, decorations, food, food. But in all of it, sometimes, even as Christians, we can let all of that kind of cloud and take away from the true meaning of Christmas. And so I want to just draw our attention to a name that we find in Matthew chapter 1 that helps us to identify exactly why Jesus came. And I think we know it. At least I hope we know it. But I think that to be reminded of it, hear it proclaimed once again, will warm our hearts, help us to regain a proper focus, and to praise the Lord for what he has done for us. We'll start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this way, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now what you need to understand, uh, in the customs of that day, their engagement, if we would call it that today, was a much, much more serious matter than what it is today. It was as if they were married already, but they just hadn't come together. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he's a godly man, and not willing to make her a public example, because he loved her, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, verse 20, I like to stop there because I think we need to understand that Joseph was thinking about scriptures in the Old Testament as they relate to marriage and divorce. He was thinking about passages in Deuteronomy. He was mulling these things over in his head, trying to make the right decision of what he should do with Mary. I think that's instructive for us today, that when it comes to decision-making in our lives, our lives should be saturated. Our minds and our hearts ought to be saturated with the Word of God so that we can make decisions based thereon. That's what Joseph was doing. Now, he didn't have all the information, did he? So while he thought on these things, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now he was given the information. And now he could make the right decision. And we find out in this passage that he indeed made the right decision. And he and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. 
verse 24. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, notice his obedience, now that he had all the information, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And then we see Joseph's obedience. And he called his name Jesus. So I want to key in on verse, 30, on verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Point number one, we have here a person with a mission. A person with a mission. You'll call his name Jesus because he has a mission. And it says here, thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. That he is emphatic in the Greek. He himself, he and no other, he is the one that will save. He it is that shall save. Joseph is to give this name to the child because this child has a special destiny, a special mission, and his mission or destiny is expressed in the meaning of his name, Jesus. That word Jesus describes his mission, his office, as it were, as a savior. Now, understand that this was a very common name at that time. But now this would forever be a special name and forever be associated with the one who saves. I don't think that there's any mothers today who have a newborn infant that would bestow upon that infant the name of Jesus. It just would seem out of place. The name itself did not have any special messianic meaning to it at that time. But now it gives a special emphasis to the mission of the Messiah. It would involve not merely deliverance from Rome, which the Jewish people were looking for, but it would involve salvation from sin. What I like to point out here is that Jesus bore a common name of his people, hence identifying with his people. The name is closely linked to Joshua. Uh, it is the Greek form of the Hebrew uh, for Joshua. And we remember that Joshua was the man uh, that led the redeemed people of God into the promised land and gave them victory over their enemies. And today as we look at who Jesus is through this name, we understand that he is the leader of his people to lead them into heaven. He is the captain of their salvation, according to Hebrews 2.10. He is leading them into the rest that he has prepared for them, according to Hebrews 4.9 just as the Joshua in the Old Testament did. There's another Joshua. He was the high priest at the time of the return from the captivity in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. And we find out that Jesus is also 
related to that kind of ministry because the book of Hebrews tells us that he is now the high priest of our profession. It's amazing. You take that one word, Jesus, the Greek, is the form of the Hebrew word Joshua, and we get the actual ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When we translate that word Jesus, it means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Or some would say Jehovah saves or Jehovah will save. And so the ministry of Jesus Christ is to deliver people from sin, to save them from sin, but it springs from Jehovah. So even in the meaning of the name, Jesus, we have the concept not of a way of salvation, but the concept that he is of a person of salvation. Salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Not just what he did, that's important. But he himself is going to save. God is salvation. He will save because he's going to die for sinners. Think about that. And so we have the person with a mission. But I want to look at next the performance of that mission. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the reason for the name is now given. Yet call him Jesus, but here's why you're going to call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now I like this. And this is something to get excited about. It's not will. He might save people from their sins. He shall save people from their sins. That word shall is the language of accomplishment and a secured salvation. Remember when Jesus died on that cross? He cried out to tell us die. It is finished. Paid in full. Every ounce, every drop of the wrath of God against sin was paid by Christ on the cross of Calvary. Paid in full. The entire penalty. Nothing left to do. This is, the word shall, the language of certainty. The language of accomplishment. Salvation is not something that is provided. Salvation is not something that is possible. Salvation is accomplished on behalf of God's people. Some people use the language that he might save some people. Or... He will save those people who want to be saved. Or he provides salvation for those who want it. Or he makes salvation possible for all. And all of these have this little bit of doubt. And that doubt being that some people, well, you know, they might believe. Or as Christ knocks on the door, they might open the door. They might be saved. That's not the language that's used here. For he shall save 
his people from their sins. Sinners will be saved because of the cross. Hebrews 7.27 talks about Jesus who needeth not daily as though high, those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. We need to understand the drawing power of the cross. And the cross that Jesus died on, where he gave his life's blood to pay sin's penalty, has a power inherent when we preach it that draws God's people to salvation. Look, if you would, at John chapter 12 and verse 32. John chapter 12, verse 32. We'll probably look at this again, but... John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus is speaking to the people after some Greeks have been brought to him who wanted to see him. And he says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will, notice again, that's certain language there, will draw all men unto me. Now, lest you think I'm a universalist, and I'm not, the word, the phrase all men there doesn't mean every person that's ever been born or ever will be born. Because if that were the case, then every person would be saved. Because the cross of Calvary, when Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he'll draw all men unto him. That, word, that phrase all men means all kinds of men, or all types of men, or all categories of men, or all men without distinction. Because if you compare that verse with John chapter 6, turn there if you would please. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Jesus again speaking says, No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And so if someone's going to come to Christ... They have to be drawn of the Father. And when they're drawn of the Father, they will be saved, and they will be raised up at the last day. And it's the same word, their draw is the same word used in John chapter 12, verse 32. The drawing power of the cross is such that when somebody hears the gospel message proclaimed and that Jesus Christ died for sins... God the Father will do his work and draw his people to himself. It's also found for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. What is the power of God? The preaching of the cross. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, 
unto the Gentiles foolishness. And now notice this, verse 24. But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There is, in the preaching of the cross of Christ, his mission to save sinners by giving his life a ransom, draws people. And that drawing never fails to accomplish what God the Father designed it to do. That's why it says, you call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That word save means there is going to be a guaranteed and effective salvation. What does the word save mean? Primarily, it means to deliver or to preserve. It implies, of course, that there are people who need salvation. And people do need to be saved from the condition that they are in. The condition that they were born in, as we're studying in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, born in that sin, and then they show that they are sinners by committing personal acts of sin. Anyone here not sin? All of us need to be saved. It means to be delivered from the greatest of all evils, as we see in this verse, and that evil is sin. To be delivered from its guilt, to be delivered from its pollution, to be delivered from its power, to be delivered especially from its punishment. And it means to be saved from that and to be put in the position of the greatest good. We are saved from sin to something. We are saved from sin to true joy. We are saved from the bondage of sin to true freedom. We are saved from sin to peace, to reconciliation with God. We are saved from sin and put into the kingdom of God, made part of his family, part of the body of Christ. So we're saved from that sin. Jesus said, or, or the angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The third point I want to make is the purpose of the mission. The purpose of the mission. He will save, and should underline this, his people. His people. The purpose or the intent of the mission of Christ, his death, was to accomplish, to secure, and to guarantee and effect the salvation of a very specific people. His people. This is not foreign to scriptures as some might think. This is, in the doctrines of grace, called particular redemption, as I think C.H. Spurgeon used to like to call it. Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. 
Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life, life a ransom for many. Acts 20, 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, the church of God. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And so we have a very specific mission here. The purpose of the mission was to save his people. If you would leave your finger here and, and turn to John chapter 11. Even in the ministry of Christ, in John chapter 11, verses 49 to 52, Caiaphas, the high priest, one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest, that same year said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Now notice verse 51, And this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he did what? He prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So even a high priest, who was, of course, against the ministry of Christ, spoke of the death of Christ in a very particular fashion. Now to Joseph... This would naturally mean Israel. But even Joseph, to whom the angel was speaking, would understand it to mean not all of Israel, but spiritual Israel. And including in that number, Gentiles as well. Let's look at some verses. Romans chapter 9 it's a very important chapter as it comes to this topic, but Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Paul is discussing here why his own flesh, Israelites, are not being saved. He says, not as though the word of God hath taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? But all he's saying is that there is a group within what is called physical Israel that we could say are spiritual Israel. Look at verse 27. Isaiah also crieth out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. A remnant shall be saved. And verse 31. But Israel, who followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Now look at chapter 11, verses 5 and 7. Even so, then, at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. All that Paul is saying is there is within the physical nation of Israel people who are 
the elect, those who are God's people, those who are, we would say, spiritual Israel. Back to chapter 9, look at verses 23 to 26. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had before appeared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but who? Also of the Gentiles. So what I'm trying to prove to you here this morning, that in that phrase in Matthew 121, when he says, he shall save his people from their sins. Who are we talking about? Spiritual Israel and Gentiles as well. Now, it is possible, and I've got many more verses, but we'll leave it at that because I think most people here would agree with me. It is possible that the angel could have been confining salvation to the Jews in this statement, but folks, it's not likely at all. We do know that the gospel was to the Jew first. Jesus confined the disciples' ministry and preaching in the beginning to Israel. We find in Matthew 15, 24, a Syro-Phoenician woman came to Jesus because her daughter was possessed of a demon, and uh, Jesus somewhat declined to help her. He said, but he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But even here, if you read the context of what's going on, here was a woman who did receive a blessing, a miracle, based on her faith in Christ, but she was not of Israel. Now, the context is not so much about salvation, and some see the words of Jesus as being uh, as a means of testing the steadfastness of her faith, but the point is that even a Gentile received a miracle from the Lord Jesus. Then Jesus, of course, told his disciples that when they went forth, he commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, into the, any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so their ministry in the beginning was to the nation of Israel. And so because the early part of the ministry of Jesus was confined to Israel, uh, those people, uh, uh, some commentators would say that the, his people here is just the nation of Israel. But I don't think we can limit it just because of that. Because in John chapter 4, early in his ministry, Jesus preached the word unto the, uh, to the people of Samaria. And a number in Samaria believed on him. And when a Roman centurion came to him in Matthew chapter 8, here was this Roman centurion. Uh, he had a servant that was sick. And he went to see Jesus where he was at. And Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion said, no, I, no, 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 just say the word. Just say the word from where you're at right here, because I'm also a man with authority. He recognized the authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And Jesus said, I've not found so great faith. No, not in where? No, not in Israel. And then he says this. Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And he's referring to Gentiles coming and joining the Jewish people. Now turn back, if you would, to John chapter 12. 
John chapter 12. We'll start in verse 23, actually verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast, John 12 and verse 20. The same came, therefore, to Philip, who was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired, desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus responds, The hour is come the son of, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there all shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my troll troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And an amazing thing happened. There came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, that Satan. And verse 32, and if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And again, let me define that all men. This is where some people get into trouble when they see that word all men. They want to say, well, that just means every single person that's ever been born or ever will be born. And that's not true. It means every category of men. Men from every financial situation. Men and women from every country. Men and women of various societies, various, how do you say it, um, financial stations. Rich, poor, free, slaves, all kinds of men. All men, without distinction, Jew and Gentile alike. And so I do not think, and many do not think, that the angel was limiting that phrase, his people, to just the Jewish nation. And here's why. Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. You'll recognize this as the Announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds as they watched their flocks by night. Verse 10, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to what? All people. All people. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The birth of Jesus Christ was to all people groups, not just the Jews. The announcements to the shepherds includes the Gentiles as well. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I believe this is Joseph speaking, or, or uh, Zacharias. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And many of the children of Israel shall return to the Lord their God, 
And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people, a people prepared for the Lord, not just the Jews. And if you compare that with Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 77, or 68 and verse 77, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, Israel, and verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. And if you read the context, we're talking about Gentiles as well. But it's not confined to just the, uh, to the people of Israel. If you look closely at these prophecies, what is confined to the people of Israel is about deliverance from physical enemies. But when Zacharias speaks of salvation from sin, it's now opened up to the Gentiles, verses 77 to 79, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high had visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Uh, light to those who sit in darkness is a reference to the Gentiles. And if you compare that to what Simeon said in Luke chapter 2 and verse 32, he said, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And notice in one verse we have both groups put together. Why am I taking so long to do this? Because the mission of Christ was for our particular people and that particular people was the elect among the nation of Israel called spiritual Israel those who had been circumcised in their hearts and included in that group are us the Gentiles we are part of one people of God called his people. Now, according to later New Testament usage, Revelation, that phrase about the Gentiles is used often. Matthew chapter 4, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. Matthew 12, 21, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. And folks, I have, you know me, I have lots of verses here. Lots of verses. But his people includes Jews and Gentiles. And in John chapter 6, those people are being given to Jesus Christ as a gift from the Father. The mystery of this age is Israelites and Gentiles making up one body, one people, one church. There is only one elect people of God, and that's what the angel is referring to, his people. The middle wall of partition has been broken down through Christ. There is now one shepherd, 
There is one fold, and we're part of it. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16, and other sheep I have. We're that other sheep which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And Jesus is calling us into that fold as Gentiles. His people, his sheep, the elect, it's all the same. And so from the beginning of time, after Adam and Eve sinned and the first gospel was preached, God has been calling out from the nations a people for his name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We're talking about all the redeemed in every age are God's people. Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You know, I'm a peculiar person. And so are you. We have been called, drawn by God the Father to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the cross to be a very special people for him. Peter puts it this way, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are just as special to God as his called out people, the nation of Israel, are. And then one day in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of, notice this, every kindred and tongue and people and nation. What a blessing that is. Therefore, that phrase, his people, is full of meaning and it refers to Messiah's people, the people of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said, and I quote, not the nation of the Jews only. He came unto his own and they received him not, but all who were given him by the Father's choice. One day, all of God's people will serve him in heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and he will be their God. And there will be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Why? Because of the mission, the particular mission of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he came to save his people from their sins. And folks, when we think about Christmas, let's not leave Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. He came for a particular reason, to save a particular people from their sins. And what is sin? Sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark of God's glory, missing the mark of God's holiness, missing the mark of perfect obedience to his law. It's an offense in relation to God. 
And the emphasis on that is the guilt that comes along with breaking God's law. It's a lack of conformity to the law of God. It is a breaking. Sin is a breaking of the law of God. And this is what we are saved from. We are saved from our sin. We are not saved so that we can have a happy marriage. That's how some people proclaim the gospel. Folks, we're not saved to live a prosperous life. That's how some people preach the gospel. We are not saved so that you can have no problems in your life. Let me tell you this. You did not know problems and trouble until you got saved. When you got saved, that's when your trouble started. Because now you have the flesh battling the spirit and this constant battle going on day after day after day. We're not saved from mistakes. We're saved from sin. We're not saved to have an easy or a good life. We're saved from sin. We're not even saved so that God can fulfill, so that we can fulfill God's plan for our lives. We're saved from sin. And that's why Jesus came, to save us from the consequences of sin, from the dominion of sin, from the penalty and the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. We need to understand that we were sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus came to save us. Amen? But even today, folks, we need to understand how offensive our sin was to a holy God. And how our sin had consequences. The Jewish people thought that the Messiah was going to free them from Rome. No, the Messiah came to save people from sin. Because in that sin that we were saved from, we had inherited corruption, according to Psalm 51.5 and Romans 5. We incurred a penalty, according to Romans 6.23. We were dead in sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Before the power of the cross started drawing us to Jesus Christ, for the Holy Spirit regenerated us so that we could believe, we were dead. We're not talking about on life support. We were dead. And because we were dead, we were separated from the life of God, according to Ephesians 4.18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Separated from the life of God. Blinded to spiritual truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Our understanding of biblical truth, of spiritual truth, of gospel truth, was darkened. We were blind by our own sin, blind by Satan, blind by the ignorance that was in us. And then Jesus came, and we were drawn to the Father. And because of that sin, 
We are unable to save ourselves. Completely unable to save ourselves. Sinners are unable to come to Christ because they are unwilling to come to Christ. They love their sin. They love the darkness that they're in. And they hate God. They hate true righteousness. They hate the truth. Folks, that was us. We were enemies of God. Enemies of his law. We couldn't keep his law. Romans 1.30, Romans 5, 9 to 10, Romans 8, 7 to 8. Colossians 1.21 says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, yet now hath he reconciled. And involved in the sin that we were in is a bondage that we could not free ourselves from. But the Jesus said, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And then as a result of all of that, all of that sin, there was a condemnation that we were under. We were under that condemnation, according to John 5, 24. And salvation frees us from all of that. The corruption, the penalty, the spiritual death, separated from the life of God, blinded to spiritual truth, unable to save ourselves, under the wrath and condemnation of God and the bondage that, that sin brings, salvation frees us from all that. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ brought salvation from that which is destroying people that which hardens their hearts and their minds against the truth. Salvation from that which will ultimately be their ruin if they do not turn to Christ, and that is their sin. And it is only through the person of Jesus Christ that they can be saved from their sin. And people trust in all manner of things for salvation from sin, but salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that name is Jesus, which we celebrate, his birth.